that. Well, if you could begin making your way back to your seats, and as you do, grab your Bibles and head on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, what we've been doing over the last several months now, five and a half months to be uh, just about exact, is that we've just been walking our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And it felt like, I don't know about you, it felt to me like we were never going to get through chapter 4. Uh, and chapters 1 and 4 is kind of this sustained topic and theme about being unified. And how it's better to be together. And your, and by your I mean we as a church are better together. And then in chapter 5... This letter takes a bit of a turn and Paul begins to address some very specific issues that the church was going through that were happening not necessarily in everybody's life but in the lives of a, a few individuals throughout the church but they were affecting everybody's life. And so we have some instructions being given about brothers taking each other to court and how you shouldn't go to court and have lawsuits between believers and it's kind of an odd it's kind of an odd section in the context of chapters 5 6 and 7 um, because everything else in those chapters deals actually with sexual immorality and marriage and divorce and relationships between men and women and how those things are supposed to look. And Paul begins to identify some very specific things that he wants to address. And then we get to chapter 7 and he now uses for the first time a phrase that we'll see turn up at least, I believe, four other times through the book. And it's the words, now concerning... And he's turning his attention and focus to address very specific questions that the Corinthian church had for him. Presumably at some point in time, somebody brought him a letter. Or somebody came and said, hey, the church has got a bunch of questions for you. Can you weigh in on these things? And he, in part, writes this letter that we call 1 Corinthians to address those questions questions. In chapter 7, we'll spend the entire month of May in, but it's all about family relationships. In particular, the relationship between a husband and a wife and how we're to think about marriage and what's to happen for those that are unmarried or perhaps widowed and what should we think about as it relates to divorce and what happens if there's a relationship where one's a believer and one's an unbeliever and, and all of these really practical questions that get addressed through his instruction. And if you just kind of think about it, it's, it's, it's amazing that these weren't just really practical questions for those living in first century Corinth. They are equally really practical questions for those living in 21st century America. And I've tried to contend for a long time because I think it just helps us get a, a perspective that the 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 stuff or the circumstances or the family dynamics or the relationships or even the, the temptations that exist today are not different than they were 2,000 years ago. And I would say they're not even different than they were back all the way to the very beginning and what we see beginning to unravel after Genesis 3 and Adam disobeying God and the brokenness of sin affecting and infecting everything. And so God's word speaks into that. 
and it speaks into that in a timeless way because the instructions that God gives through the Apostle Paul to the church and people in Corinth 2,000 years ago are just as timeless and relevant for us today as they were for them. In our text this morning, we're going to be looking at verses, um, I forget what the verses are, 7 to 24, there we go. And it's a very interesting section. It kind of hits right in the middle of chapter 7. And there's, there's about 33, 34 verse, verses in chapter 7 in total. And this section, Paul does something really, really interesting. And he actually does what preachers try to do when they stand before you each and every Sunday morning. And so uh, whether you've noticed it or thought about it this particularly uh, or specifically, there's kind of three parts to a sermon. One part's the explanation part where uh, I get to stand before you and say, this is what that verse says and this is what that means. And then there's an illustration part and, and that's usually the part where we go, well, okay, that's what it means, so think about it in this way and maybe we're going to help you kind of conceptualize it over here in, in an illustration or here's a, here's a picture that captures that big idea. And then the third part is trying to navigate through some of the application of what was said and what it means. And, and so there's these three parts that kind of are always existing in each and every sermon. And all three parts are existing in these verses here. And what's really interesting and what will actually prove to be a little difficult is that the illustrations Paul uses make a ton of sense. I'm convinced to the first Corinthians that he wrote to. We're going to struggle a little bit more to kind of unpack and understand what his illustrations mean and perhaps even why he chose to use the illustrations he does. I think we'll get there, but he, in illustrating his very point that he's making, is giving some ways for the Corinthians to think about his big point, his big idea, in ways that would connect with them, but in ways that we're going to go, okay, we don't have almost enough information or experience to fully understand what it is that he is writing. So it's an interesting text in that regard. And we're going to kind of look at that and we're going to go, what in the world does circumcision have to do with marriage? And those are some of the questions that we got to address. And slavery and freedom. And well, that, that kind of feels like it means something different in North America over the last 300 years than it might have meant back in first century Corinth? And, and how do we navigate all of those different things? Well, that's part of what we'll get to do here over the next several minutes together as we seek to understand what the text says and then figure out kind of how to picture it and kind of take it to heart and then apply it from there. So before we go any further, let's pray. And to that end, invite the Lord to just come and be the one who's actually doing those things. And then we'll hop into the text. Well, God, we pray that you would help us to understand that as we look at your word, that as we try to make sense of it, as we try to see where it is that we need to obey it, that those things would become clear for us. And God, to that end, we just invite you 
and your spirit to just come and work in the ways that work is needed. Certainly there's an element where all of us collectively as a body of believers need to be changed by this text. And yet this text will also apply differently to each and every one of us as individuals. And so God, would, would you just come and do that work? the work that only you can do. God, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear and, and eyes that see and minds that understand and can, can grabs, grasp the big idea. And God, as we look at your word and as we think through these things and even, even the picture that marriage is and how it represents the gospel, would you give us a greater understanding this morning of the gospel and of Jesus? And it's in his good name we pray. Amen. Well, to try to summarize, I think what Paul's big idea in this set of verses is, here would be a, a sentence to perhaps try and do so, and it's this. The gospel is not better news for some. And it's kind of an awkward sentence. I'm not going to stand here and say that's the greatest summary sentence I've ever come up with. But I think, it's, I think it's one that captures exactly what he's trying to communicate. That the gospel is not better news for some. Now, who are the some? Well, in context, in chapter 7, the some could be those married. Could be those married where both individuals are believers. And so if you're not in a relationship like that, you might be tempted to think the gospel is better news for them. Or it could be those that are unmarried or those that have been widowed. You might be tempted to think the gospel is better news if you're married. And, and the idea, I believe, in this text is that the gospel is not better news for some. It is good news for all. And as we've tried to think through that over the last several weeks together, we've been try, tried to think specifically through the fact that first to actually understand the gospel, you've got to first understand that it's equally bad news for all that have sinned. So even before we can unpack the good news of the gospel, there needs to be a recognition that the gospel is first bad news. And it's equally bad news for all who have sinned, but it is also equally good news for all who trust in Jesus Christ and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so there are not different classes of Christians. And there's not different ways or levels of grace that have been received by some and not others. The gospel is not better news for some. If you got saved at a late age in life, you did not get more grace than somebody who was saved at an early age in life. The gospel is not better news for some. It is equally bad news for all who have sinned, and it is equally good news for all who trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul, a couple different times in his letters, hits on this. And he does so in Galatians, he does so in Colossians. And I think the, the, the places that those sentences, and they just kind of amount to be sentences in each of those books, where those comments are made, 
what we have here in our text this morning is just kind of an extended explanation of why that's true within the context of a marriage relationship. So let's see if this sounds familiar to you. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. Now those are actually the two relationships that our text this morning is going to hit on. Circumcised and uncircumcised is a way to reference Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks. And then he's very specifically going to reference slave and free. But in Galatians, he goes further. There's either, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, Paul is not in any way intending to erase gender distinction. And that's not his point there. And I kind of, you got to say that in today's culture to say that's not what he's intending to write, what he's saying is that you don't get more grace or gospel if you're a guy. That it's not, there's not a second class citizenry in God's kingdom. Men aren't less or more than women. Women aren't less or more than men. And he cites the kind of the most fundamental relationships that exist in society. Jews and Gentiles. That was a fundamental way of of kind of distinguishing externally amongst people. Slave and free, another fundamental way of distinguishing between groups of people. And then male and female, another fundamental way of distinguishing between people. He'll say this in Colossians. He'll throw out the, the, uh, the, the barbarians and the Scythians. And there's another group of individuals that he tosses in to the mix and says, look, no, it's actually just the gospel. It's not a gospel. It's not better news for some. And here's, I think, what Paul is getting after in the text is this big idea that the gospel is not better news for some. And what he does in these set of verses is three different times he gives the exact same command. I read and heard it was referenced by another pastor in my study that I was looking through this week. He said it's kind of like a Big Mac. Okay, there's a piece of bread. There's the middle, there's a piece of bread, there's a little bit more in the middle, and then there's a piece of bread. It's kind of actually how this set of verses is structured. The command shows up three times. Think of the command as bread. Think of the stuff in the middle as the illustrations to try to uh, kind of unpack the commands. And somewhere in there you got secret sauce and sesame seeds. And, and his command, though, beginning, middle, and end gets repeated three different times. And we'll see it here in verses 17, 20, and 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Verse 20, the language changes a little bit, but the point's still the same. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And almost identically to that, verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. In the verse 17, the three words that we have in English, lead the life, is just one word, and it's a command word. It's a word that tells you and I to do something. In verse 20, the command there is remain. That's where the command word shows up, and the same is exactly true in verse 24. The command there, again, is to remain. So let's look at verse 17 a little closer together only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him 
and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now those three words, lead the life, that shows up in our English translation, it is actually the exact same word that Paul uses very, very frequently throughout all of his letters. If you've ever read one of Paul's letters, invariably you'll get to a point where he says, you need to walk. And he uses this word walk that gets translated that way in our English Bibles. I think of Ephesians 4.1, as a prisoner of the Lord, therefore I urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. That verse was, was revolutionary in my life as a college freshman when I sat in uh, church, in Christ's Covenant Church, and heard that verse expounded upon and was convicted that my walk was not worthy of this gospel I would say I was saved by. And there was some repenting that needed to be done in my life in those moments and days and weeks. But it is this idea of walking, this idea of action, this idea of living. I read this past week, one scholar said this, that for Paul, walking is the most comprehensive way of talking about conduct and life. It's kind of an all-inclusive idea of everything you do. And there's a sense in these verses, in verses 17 to 24, that the principles Paul outlines and the three commands that he gives have application in virtually every area of life, even though they find themselves showing up in the context of marriage. And so there's kind of a near application and a far application, if you will. The near application would be the application directly next to or closest to anything related to marriage. The far application would be the aspect of its general effect on all of life. Only let each person walk, lead the life that God has assigned to him. As a command, Paul's saying, look, you need to do this. You need to do it now. If you're not doing it, you need to begin doing it. And you need to not stop doing it. Perhaps a good way to summarize even that in language that we've tried to, or I've tried to use over the last several months together, be singular in your focus. Be unyielding in your passion. Do it. Do it now. Don't stop doing it. Verse 17 has a couple very distinctive features in it. One of them is that the sovereignty of God shows up. And it shows up in some big ways. And it shows up in some ways that are incredibly important for us to stop and take note and I want us to see that, and I want, it to, I want us to highlight that, and I don't want us to kind of run from that, even though in the near context of marriage and family and these matters, the sovereignty of God can be, quite frankly, a very difficult aspect to try to reconcile. I'll try to unpack that a little bit. But he says this, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. That word assigned means to be dealt. 
We use the English expression, the hand you've been dealt. It's, it's not that far away from this idea of assignment. It could be the apportioning of something or being given something in particular. And here's the big idea that Paul is saying, look, you need to walk you need to be singular in your focus and unyielding in your passion in the life the Lord has given to you. One aspect of that is the realization that we do not live, nor are we self-autonomous, determining people. And there's tension there, and I don't ever want to run from the tension, because I think it's it's only when you hold the tension in tension properly that you begin to hear some of the beautiful notes that are supposed to ring out. Because that idea of us not being self-autonomous, determining people, if taken to one extreme, concludes that we're just robots doing exactly what God has and is controlling us to do. The other extreme is that God has absolutely nothing to do with my life. And we got to reject both of those and find some way to hold tension there in the middle, similarly to the guitar that is behind me and the piano that is over here. When those strings are held in tension, those notes can ring forth distinct, beautiful sounds. Paul is not in any way trying to beat around the bush in identifying the fact that you and I find ourselves in the situations we are in, in the scenarios that we are in, in the relationships that we are in because of the sovereign hand and apportionment and assignment of God. So let's just ask the next question. What if I don't like what I've been assigned? What if this is not what I signed up for? And those are the real life questions that arise out of this. What if I don't, what if I don't like it? I mean, in, in a broad sense, where this applies generally to life, what if I didn't want my sister to miscarry last week? You're telling me that God's assignment for me was to be an abusive relationship? That's what he dealt. That, that's the hand this gracious, loving, merciful, compassionate God dealt me. It's part of the tension between sovereignty and man's responsibility. And the scriptures are clear that God is in control and absolutely nothing happens that's outside of his control but the choices that you and I make really do matter. We're not just robots. The 
choices we make really do matter. And it wasn't God's will for you to be in an abusive relationship in the sense that he planned for that to happen and he wanted that to happen to you and he wanted those things to be a part of your life. But that's part of the reality of sin. And yet it hasn't escaped his sovereignty. See, the big picture idea here is that God's call and assignment is not that he's mean and vindictive and a cranky old man who's just trying to make your life miserable. And there's one end to this verse and this idea of God's in control that can lead us there. I think the big picture idea is that your life, that your assignment, that what has happened has not happened outside of God's rule and reign. He hasn't forgotten about you. He's not overlooked you. He's still God in the midst of the really difficult things that you're going through. And sovereignty, unfortunately, believers have, I think, have a tendency to throw sovereignty around. To be, it's probably because we don't know what else to do. But it almost comes off more like sentiment. And so when somebody walks through a really difficult time, we go, hey, God's in control. And it's kind of like this sentimental phrase that kind of says like, hey, chin up, soldier. God's in control. And it's not wrong. I mean, it's, it's not untruthful. But the sentiment's probably unhelpful. Because it feels like we're just trying to kind of put a Band-Aid on this broken arm that you got. There's some deeply inflicted wounds that have happened, and we're just kind of telling you to buck up and chin up, and hey, let's go, shoulders back, march forward, you know, and we're going to kind of bring some catchphrases to the forefront to kind of maybe get you to just not struggle so much. And that's not at all what the scriptures present God's sovereignty to be. Rather than this band-aid or coffee cup statement that gets thrown around, for reasons of sentiment, it's like this weighted blanket that God intends for us to be underneath. We don't get all the answers. We don't understand all the angles. There are unbelievably difficult questions in the midst of it. And yet there is God still saying, I've not stopped. I'm still ruling. I'm still reigning. What just happened to you was wrong. But it didn't happen because I stepped away. I've not overlooked you. I've not forgotten about you. It's this weighted blanket that he intends for us to sit under. It's exactly what Paul says to those that are wondering 
about the reality of their marriages. The husband that's married to a wife that's not a believer, or vice versa. What's going on here, God? This isn't what I signed up for. It's not what I was looking to have. And God is wanting to step into that moment to say, this has not escaped my rule and reign. And I'm still who I am, even in the midst of the storm. So let each person lead the life God has assigned to him. Let each person be singular in their focus and unyielding in their passion as they think about what it is, that where it is they find themselves and what it is God has called them to. He continues, this is my rule in all the churches. The idea there is that this isn't just something Paul kind of whipped up and threw out here for the Corinthians, that this carries itself through in each of his churches that he has influence in, that he's been involved with, perhaps directly planted himself. This idea of God's sovereignty in the midst of our lives and our response to him in both the joy and the pain shows up time and time again throughout the scriptures. And to try to help them unpack that and us by extension, Paul throws out some illustrations for them to think through and process this through. And I think what's characteristic of the illustrations that he uses is that he picks two everyday examples in life that are examples of things that are unchangeable. So just back to the context of marriage for a minute and what Paul has said up into this point. Okay, he said very clearly, look, if you're a Christian man married to a Christian woman, that marriage is permanent with no exceptions. It's unchangeable. If you're a Christian man married to a non-Christian woman or vice versa, that marriage is permanent with just one exception. And you should probably better just conclude that that's intended to be unchangeable. But he's also addressed the unmarried, he's also addressed widows, and he has said, look, my, my best advice for you is that you remain as you are. So again, the idea of unchangeable comes back into focus. But there he does give not, not just the exception, but just the acknowledgement that, you know, the, the gift of celibacy and the gift of non-celibacy are both gifts, and you need to just kind of understand what you, which one God's given you, and if you're going to burn with passion because you don't have the gift of celibacy, then marry, and you've not done anything wrong, but the idea of this being unchangeable shows up kind of time and time again, and I think that's what is true and characteristic of these examples that he gives, and so the gospel is not better news for some. 
Let's think about that through some different aspects of daily life in situations that are unchangeable. And in verses 18 and 19, the big idea is that ethnicity does not matter. In verses 21 to 23, the big idea there is that social status does not matter. So let's go to verse 18 and we'll read that and 19 together. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So the gospel is not better news for some that have certain parts of their body. Ethnicity doesn't matter, is his big idea. Was anyone at the time of his call, the idea and the word call there is a specific reference to when God called you to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Ethnicity doesn't matter. And the words circumcision and uncircumcision begin to be a way to understand and unpack that because that was one of the most basic distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. It was one of the things the early church fought about. When they gathered together in uh, Acts 15, there wasn't necessarily a, a royal battle in that chapter, but they had gathered to address this issue because there were those around in the surrounding areas struggling with this. There were some specifically teaching that, yeah, you can put your faith and trust in Christ, but every guy's still got to be circumcised. And others were saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. No, that's not a condition for faith in Christ. And they gathered. And the Jerusalem council, Paul and Peter and Barnabas and the elders there in Jerusalem, gathered and they determined that they were not going to require Gentile believers to become circumcised. That it was not a requirement or a condition for salvation. But it was something those from a Jewish background heavily prized and heavily cherished. And it became a very, very distinct identifying characteristic that was celebrated. And so when Paul gives his resume in Philippians 3, where based on just external works, what he brought to the table and why he thought God would accept him because of all of his awesomeness. One of the very first things that he cites is, I was from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. What that means was I had the right DNA and my parents did it the right way because they took me to the priest or to the Levi and they got the job done at exactly the right point in time the job was supposed to be done. From the very beginning, before I even had a choice in the matter, I was on the right track. And then he begins to just expound all the other reasons why he thought in his awesomeness, God should say, hey, you're awesome. But he concludes that it wasn't actually his awesomeness at all that mattered. It was faith in Christ. The point's very similar here. Ethnicity does not matter. Ethnicity does not matter. And ethnicity is a very interesting way to kind of think through some of the distinctions that people exist with. 
here in a couple months in our Vacation Bible School, the idea is going to be on how there's one human race. It is absolutely true. And that idea and that, that truth from the scriptures needs to be and is one that our culture needs to hear. Because we do a lot of time and spend a lot of time fighting with people over the external differences that distinguish us. And unfortunately, there's all sorts of groups and organizations and individuals who believe that because of their color of skin or their color of skin, one is better or worse than another. And it's just all garbage. Ethnicity doesn't matter. But in saying that there's one human race, we also don't want to erase the fact that there are, though, distinctions. And those distinctions are to be celebrated. They're part of what God did in His mercy in the Tower of Babel, where, yes, there certainly was judgment in the fact that He scattered the, la- the, the, the tribes and confused their languages, but there was also mercy on display as well. And there now is a whole variety of culture and language and ethnic groups that just create a, another way for us to just just be amazed at the creative genius of God. And ethnicity, very specifically, would be just kind of somebody's DNA. So let's think about this in, in, in regards to our son Tobin, okay? Okay, Tobin is ethnically Chinese. He will always be ethnically Chinese. That's just his ethnicity. That's not going to ever change. It's a fundamental, unchangeable part of his life. He is ethnically Chinese. But he's nationally something else. He's nationally American. He's got an American passport. He's got a Pennsylvania birth certificate. He's got an American social security card. We've worked through all of those steps and the processes to just kind of navigate all of that. His nationality is American though his ethnicity is Chinese. And then you bring in culture, which has a whole other landscape and tier of things involved in it. We could just say his culture is Waynesboro, for whatever that means. Your nationality can change. Your ethnicity doesn't. Ethnicity doesn't matter in the gospel. The good news is not better news for some of certain ethnic groups. And this very basic distinction of Jews and Gentiles at the most fundamental level, Paul's saying, look, it just doesn't matter. Circumcision counts for nothing. Or circumcision does not count for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. See, the gospel is not better news for those who want to add or remove certain outward marks marks of cultural distinguishment. Let's think through how this applies to marriage. The gospel is not better news for those that are married, as opposed to those who are not. You didn't get saved by better gospel if you found yourself married at the time of your salvation or not. It's not better news Verse 20, again, we have the big idea repeated. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was 
called. So don't let him who has the marks of circumcision try to remove them. There was actually surgical procedures that were done at this point in time in history to try and reverse that. And if you've not been, you don't need to be. It just doesn't matter. You're not saved by a better gospel. Well, the second big idea is social status does not matter. Verse 21, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. Here the idea is that social status doesn't matter. Now, the word slave for us is a difficult word for us to get around. A difficult word for us to process. At the most basic level, it means something to us kind of by default that it does not mean in the scriptures. And yet there aren't, it's not a complete difference. And it just becomes quite difficult to try to unpack and understand what slavery looked like in the first century. It's been estimated that one-third of Corinth were slaves. One-third were freed slaves. And one-third of those in Corinth had been born free. And then depending on who you read, and, and, and I've just kind of chosen to try to read all that I can, because try to find a kind of a middle ground perspective in and amongst all that's out there, Generally speaking, the slave-master relationship probably, in its best case, existed similar to how we do today in employer and employee relationships. Not, not a complete one-to-one comparison, but in its best case scenario, that was by and large the comparison. But there were plenty of bad apples out there. There were plenty of people that history has recorded who did believe their slaves were their own property and treated them as such. But as like kind of a quote-unquote institution, that wasn't the predominant or prevailing characteristic. Now that sets itself apart from slavery and the slave trade of Europe and North America several hundred years ago when there was no thought of employment. It was all ownership and it was all going to treat you worse than I treat my animals. It's not exactly what was happening here. So even though we, we, we read that word slave, we just need to be, we need to be just mindful of the fact we bring a bunch of cultural definitions to the table when we read that word. In the New Testament, the word slave is not always used negative, negatively. In fact, even our relationship to Jesus Christ is expressed in a master-slave type of relationship. Again, I think it just kind of takes the focus and the attention back to probably depended on who the boss was as to whether the experience was positive or not. Some slaves were allowed to buy their freedom. And then they chose, as emancipated slaves, 
to still stay and work for the one who they just had freed themselves from. Paul's big point here is that social status doesn't matter. Social status doesn't matter. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't be concerned about it because it's not a better gospel if you were free. And I think it's interesting in parentheses that he writes, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself. And he continues, for he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man. And likewise, he who is free when he was called a slave is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. It's not a better gospel depending on your social status. It's not a better gospel depending on your ethnicity. It's not a better gospel if you are married and your spouse is also a believer. It's not a better gospel or a worse gospel. You're not second class if you're unmarried. I think Paul just resoundingly is trying to just kind of drive this point and this idea home. And he does so once again in verse 24, wrapping up for the third time, giving us the third piece of bread in our Big Mac to say, whatever condition each one was called, Therefore, let him remain with God. Ethnicity doesn't matter at the foot of the cross. Social status does not matter at the foot of the cross. In the greater context of marriage, widowed, unmarried, single, never been married, divorced, remarried, Married for one time and one time only. It's not a better gospel. And his command is to remain in the condition that you are. Remain where God has put you. Where God has called you. Be singular in your focus there. Be unyielding in your passion there. And this is going to hit into the, the, the hard areas and relationships of life. And God says, first, I want, Paul says, first, I want you to think about the fact that, that God's, God's got this and he's in control. And I want you to be faithful where you find yourself. Let's pray. God in heaven, in some ways, those are easy things to say and really, really difficult things to live out because some of the conditions that we find ourselves in perhaps are not favorable. They might be tough. Might not be what we signed up for. God, I pray that you would you would just meet with those in those relationships and in those situations in a special way. That the 
the reminders of your sovereignty and your assignment wouldn't just be just sentimental band-aids thrown out to get somebody to chin up and soldier on. But they would they would meet them with kind of the weight and the glory and all the godness that you have. That you would just in a special way just kind of pour your grace into that individual and remind them that they've they've not somehow been overlooked they've not somehow escaped your rule and reign that that you you didn't take a day off you weren't you weren't power napping when that moment happened and you're still the same God in the midst of it and in the middle of whatever that storm might be, that you're holding on to us. And that you remind us that it's not up to us to hold on to you. It's you who holds us. So God, help us to be faithful today tomorrow and this week where we find ourselves to be singular in our focus unyielding in our passion and we pray this in Jesus name amen